To obey organized government is right. To disobey is death. This is your FBI. Step into the incredible, amazing future. Welcome to Think Tank, another special edition of Free World Theory, the podcast you're not supposed to listen to, a Chaz Holloway production. I'm Bill Hergensen. In this episode, you'll visit the dawn of the information age, and we'll discover that Thor is a lot more than a Marvel comic superhero. Think Tank, Think Tank. I'm Chas Holloway, creator of Free World Theory. A quick announcement before we start. I've been putting videos on TikTok recently to promote this podcast. However, the TikTok censors have caught on that my videos are not exactly socialist friendly, so they've started censoring them. I think they have no clue that I'm not a political operative, that I'm a science and tech guy. I don't think they'd care. In the U.S., tolerance for the free exchange of ideas is getting close to French Revolution levels. Hey, Lavoisier, the great scientist, was executed during the French Revolution. Other activities of the French Revolution, by the way, were toppling statues and imprisoning people for having wrong ideas. Sound familiar? Two of my videos have been censored on TikTok so far. The first one for hate speech. Here it is. A lot of people don't want to live in a democracy anymore. They'd rather live in a dictatorship that supports their point of view. For a better way, check out Free World Theory, the podcast. Now, I was informed that this second video was censored for criminal activity. The U.S. government announced recently it tends to rein in and tax cryptocurrencies. This was just a few days after China made the same announcement. The Chinese also made Bitcoin mining illegal. It appears U.S. politicians and Chinese dictators are thinking the very same thoughts. But the U.S. is not going to rein in crypto. The blockchain has never been hacked, and all they can do is tax and control people when they trade using exchanges. All people need to do to protect themselves is save crypto and trade crypto privately. The state won't stop people from using cryptocurrencies any more than they could stop people from drinking alcohol during prohibition or smoking weed during the war on drugs. They tried to stop sports gambling on the internet and failed. All they can really do is pass laws and manufacture millions of so-called criminals. But then, the question arises, who is really the criminal class? The advocates of freedom or the politicians? For better government, check out Free World Theory, the podcast. Okay, now censorship has got to end, period. All right, one other announcement. I just want to say that the Free World Theory podcast episodes are in order. But I know there are people who like to jump around and they get to everything eventually, and that's okay too. I bring this up just in case you didn't know that, in case that matters to you. Again, thank you for listening to the Free World Theory podcast. This episode is another special edition, and it's already running long, so let's get to it. You're listening to Free World Theory. Here's another thought for the day. USB sounds like a backup in case USA fails. Saturn's rings. They were a mystery for centuries. They were first seen by Galileo in 1610.
2010. But his telescope wasn't good enough to see more than a blur. They looked like protrusions, so he called them the planet's ears. In 1612, the Earth passed through the plane of Saturn's rings and the ears disappeared, confusing the great scientist. He was vexed again when they reappeared in 1613. In 1655, the Dutch scientist Christian Huygens discovered a better way to grind lenses. He used the clearer vision to see miracles in the sky. He was the first to see the Orion Nebula. He discovered a huge moon circling Saturn and named it Titan. And he discovered the planet's so-called ears were actually magnificent rings which only deepened their eerie mystery. What were they? Robert Hooke observed that the rings cast shadows on the giant planet in 1666. Giovanni Cassini saw there were actually multiple rings and found more moons in 1675. For nearly 200 years after that, nobody knew if Saturn's rings were solid, liquid, or, as some speculated, hollow. The mystery was finally solved in 1859 when James Clark Maxwell mathematically demonstrated they couldn't be liquid or gaseous. Gravitational forces would tear them apart. They had to be made up of countless tiny particles. Maxwell had been born in 1831. As a boy, he had endless curiosity. He wanted to know how everything worked. He couldn't communicate his sophisticated ideas to the other kids, so his schoolmates called him Daffy. Little did they know, Daffy would become one of the five greatest scientists in history. At 15 years old, he submitted a mathematical paper to the Royal Society of Edinburgh. It was so profound, the professors there didn't believe he had actually written it. During his 20s, he read and reread Michael Faraday's books on electricity and magnetism. At 28, after taking a break from that subject to solve the mystery of Saturn's rings, he took up another math problem that also dealt with billions of small particles, the invisible elements that made up the air. Every gas is made up of tiny particles, moving rapidly in all directions and at all velocities, bouncing off each other. Maxwell treated them statistically. Some moved slowly, some quickly, most at an intermediate speed. That was common sense, but then Maxwell became astonishingly profound. At that time, it was believed that heat was a kind of fluid because it seemed to flow through materials. But Maxwell showed both experimentally and mathematically that heat was in fact the result of molecules moving and nothing more. This destroyed once and for all the idea, believed by scientists everywhere, that heat was a mystical kind of fluid. It was a staggering revolution in science achieved by a 28-year-old. But James Clark Maxwell's greatest achievement and one of the greatest scientific achievements of all time occurred when he took on Faraday's speculations about electromagnetic force he used mathematics to explain what Faraday, who was completely ignorant of math, had tried to describe. Maxwell showed that neither electricity nor magnetism could exist in isolation. When there was one, there was the other. He developed four simple equations that describe all of the ways electricity and magnetism could interact. Maxwell's equations are the foundation of our entire modern world. 
No electric age or broadcast industry or digital world could exist without them. His insight, considered peculiar in his day, created our entire modern world. Along with Archimedes, Galileo, Newton and Einstein, James Clark Maxwell is now one of the five greatest scientists in history. And that wasn't all he did. He made yet another discovery, the implications of which have still not been worked out. His experiments with how heat worked led him to a fundamental discovery about the nature of the universe. Another scientist, Rudolf Clausius, in a paper submitted to the Berlin Academy in 1850, showed that heat can't pass from a colder to a hotter body. He was the first to express the second law of thermodynamics, that all things everywhere run down, and he coined the term entropy. Maxwell discovered that Clausius's predicted heat death of the entire universe was not inevitable, but only probable. And even if it did happen one day, it may not be eternal. It's a great ponderable for scientists of the future and may even turn out to shed light on the origin of life itself. I'm Hayden Jones for Free Will Theory. Removing your head to show respect has been replaced by removing your earbuds. You're listening to Free World Theory. Today, it's in vogue for professors to nuzzle up to the philosophy of deconstructionism. From its lofty vantage point, they can claim there's no such thing as truth, everything is relative, and Western knowledge is a dangerous culture. The pop philosophy of deconstructionism is what lies behind the political correctness movement of today. But as these academics sneer contemptuously at the uninformed public, they don't realize it's really they who are uninformed. The founder of deconstructionism was the Frenchman Jacques Derrida. Born in 1930, he was named after silent movie child star Jackie Coogan, who would later play Uncle Fester in the Addams Family TV show. He was the leader of postmodern philosophy, and he died in 2004. The thing is, as a philosopher, he's just not that profound. Here's the game of deconstruction. Most, not all, but most words in our language are ultimately circular. For example, take the word freedom. Look it up in the dictionary and it will say that which pertains to liberty. Now look up liberty in the dictionary. It will say that which pertains to freedom. This is called circular reasoning. In other words, where's the rake next to the hoe? Where's the hoe next to the rake? Well, where are the rake and the hoe? Oh, they're next to each other. When you encounter circular reasoning like this, words lose all their power to describe things. And since so many words break down under close examination, deconstruction freaks say knowledge is impossible. Really, it's a sophomoric trap. It's pop philosophy, like all we are is dust in the wind. Here's the problem with the deconstructionists' line of reasoning. Yes, many of our concepts are ultimately circular, but not all of them. There are a few things we know operationally. Fire is hot. If you fall downstairs, you get hurt. We know these things because we've experienced them. Those are simple examples. If you want to know more sophisticated things, like how does a radio wave work, or what is the freezing temperature of water, you can perform operations in a laboratory. We all have vague, fuzzy concepts in our heads, but our hard experiential knowledge takes priority. 
How much of our thinking is hard knowledge and how much is fuzzy? Does it matter? Look around. Our species has collected enough of the hard stuff to build a highly technological world. Unfortunately for the deconstructionists, the idea that knowledge is impossible is absurd. As to the claim that everything is relative, well, if it's true, it's an absolute statement, so it can't be true. There's a name I'm trying to think of for statements like that, oxy-something. Oh, yeah. It also describes the deconstructionist, moron. History Remembered for Free World Theory. I'm Chas Holloway. You're listening to the Free World Theory Podcast. Usted está escuchando el podcast de la Teoría de la Libertad Universal. In the 1880s, Thomas Edison, deep in his Menlo Park lab, is creating the DC Electric Age. It was a time of invention, entrepreneurialism, and genius set free. Replacing gas lighting on city streets was Edison's goal. He demonstrated the advantage of his electric light bulbs to the New York City bureaucrats, who granted him exclusive rights to operate a lighting system on Wall Street. Only after they granted their permission could he build the world's first electricity generation and distribution system. By 1883, there were more than 300 electrical generators in operation around the country, all simple DC dynamos, locally owned, operated by steam engines and water wheels, providing electricity to a few city blocks or to a single factory or hotel. By 1900, Edison GE controlled more than 1,200 power stations around the country. They'd become so commonplace, politicians declared them, quote, a public service. Companies everywhere which had started as private ventures were taken over by the cities. Today, we tend to believe that the early electric companies were created by daring speculators, mavericks, inventors, and rugged individualists. But the truth is, electric companies were controlled by politicians from the very start. Nikola Tesla, Edison's competitor who discovered alternating current and invented the electric motor, partnered with George Westinghouse. But Westinghouse, too, had to contend with city bureaucrats to build power plants. I am speaking to you from my desk in the executive mansion in Albany on a subject that vitally affects the lives of almost every man, woman, and child in all of the United States. In 1932, FDR was elected. He enacted the New Deal, a potpourri of government control programs. One of these was the Public Utility Holding Company Act of 1935. Electric power production and transmission was completely taken from the, quote, profit-seeking capitalists and put under government control. As a result, innovation in energy production slowed to a crawl. Not long after World War II, nuclear fission reactors were designed and built to produce electricity. There were two possible kinds of fuel for fission reactors, thorium and uranium. Uranium reactors were vastly more complicated, expensive, and efficient, and produced dangerous radioactive waste. Thorium reactors, on the other hand, were simpler, cheaper, hugely more efficient, and produced negligible radioactive waste. But the U.S. government was in control of energy production. They wanted to stay ahead of the Cold War arms race, so they chose to develop uranium reactors. Because they had one thing that thorium reactors did not, their radioactive waste products could be used to make nuclear bombs. 
1973, they officially discontinued all work on thorium, and knowledge of thorium reactors was intentionally cut from the public. So effectively that as late as 2012, the trade publication Chemical Engineering and News reported, most people, including scientists, have hardly heard of the heavy metal element thorium and know little about it. Thorium is an element that's common and cheap to use as a reactor fuel. It's safe and simple to use. Thorium reactors have no risk of thermal runaway and meltdown is impossible. Thorium cycle wastes are minimal, radioactively benign, and contain no material that can be used for making nuclear bombs. Thorium use is 20 to 30 times more efficient than uranium and it's three times more abundant in nature. Its conversion from ore to fuel is also much easier than uranium. It doesn't require enrichment. Uranium enrichment, on the other hand, is perhaps the most expensive chemical mechanical refinement operation ever known to humankind. And thorium reactors are safe for even more reasons. Thorium fuel is liquid and can be easily drained and pumped from the reaction zone, rapidly stopping the fission when necessary. Uranium reactors, in contrast, can only be stopped by removing the neutrons, which requires extremely complicated control rod absorption, shielding, sensing, and movement. Liquefied thorium is easy to transport from place to place, unlike uranium, which is extremely difficult. Also, thorium fission and heat transfer takes place at low pressures, unlike uranium, which uses high-pressure vessels and piping, which is prone to fatigue, failure, and leaks. All this adds up to significant economies of scale if thorium power plants were commercialized. Thorium is a cheap, safe, abundant source of green energy, plentiful enough to power the Earth for thousands of years. It completely solves the problems of global warming, climate change, and sustainable growth. There is one reason, and one reason only, that thorium is not being used. Political states want uranium reactors, along with the radioactive wastes, so they can make nuclear weapons. I'm Bill Hergensen on Free World Theory, the podcast. You're listening to the Free World Theory podcast. Vous écoutez le podcast de la théorie de la liberté universelle. Anybody could see it. He was some sort of primitive genius. Modest Mussorgsky was the most unique voice the Russian world had ever heard. The famous composers of the day, Borodin, Kui, Rimsky-Korsakov, Franz Liszt, they all recognized his strange, unconventional power. Unfortunately, the man was falling apart. Mussorgsky was born in 1839. His mother was an exceptional pianist. He grew up loving Russian folktales and myths and began depicting them by improvising on the piano at four years old, even before he learned how to play elementary pieces. By the age of seven, he could play Liszt. He had an intense interest in everything literature, history, science and painting, philosophy and astronomy, and for a while he kept them all in perspective in his head. All artists struggle with their concept. Recognizing, shaping, and articulating an original vision is every artist's private war. But it was a war Mussorgsky was losing. As he grew older, he grew more confused. Over and over, he'd start pieces he couldn't finish. Acts of operas, fragments of symphonies, scenes from ballets, sketches for piano works. The odd thing was, most of what he wrote, from fragments to half-completed operas, were masterpieces. There was a war in his brain between genius and confusion. To deal with the demons, he turned to alcohol. 
Soon, his friends who believed in him had no choice but to fall away, one by one, and leave him to himself. Rimsy Korsakoff stuck with him the longest. He let Mazorsky live with him for years. Eventually, though, Korsakoff married, and that finished it. In the end, Mazorsky, the huge bearded man, just shuffled around all day in a sloppy nightshirt and drank. He died at 42 years old. The countless scribbled pages he left behind, scenes and sketches and fragments, ranged from idiocy to pure genius. Rimsy Korsakoff pieced them all together. He orchestrated and finished them. The result? Night on Bald Mountain, pictures at an exhibition, the opera Boris Godunov, and more. Works that are today among the highest water marks in the history of music. History Remembered for Free World Theory. I'm Charles Holloway. Free World Theory is also a book. Binge read it today. Search for The End, The Fall of the Political Class by Chas Holloway on Amazon.com. Until Johannes Gutenberg came along, books were copied by hand. It was so laborious that during the 1400s, only rich universities and monasteries could afford to have libraries, and those libraries had only a few dozen books. Gutenberg was born in 1400 in Germany, and in the year 1454, he invented printing. Stamps that made impressions had been known since the days of ancient Samaria. The king's seal made documents official. But Gutenberg envisioned something far beyond that, not just a one-use stamp, but a series of tiny metal stamps, one for each letter of the alphabet. They could be assembled to stamp an entire page, then broken down and reassembled to print another page. The concept of movable type. Gutenberg came from Mainz, Germany, a town founded by the Romans, was once important militarily in ancient times. But in 1430, when he was 30 years old and forced to leave it because of legal entanglements, the place was insignificant. Today, the town is famous again, but only because Gutenberg was born there. It was one thing to think up the idea of movable type. It was another to actually do it. This was not so easy. Many different inventions had to come together to make the idea work. First, he needed something to print onto. In those days, they used parchment for hand copying, but it was made from leather and was too expensive, so not practical. Fortunately, there was another obscure material that had reached Europe by then, paper. It had been invented more than a thousand years earlier in China, supposedly by a eunuch named Tsai Lun, who made it out of tree bark, rags, and hemp. It made its way around the world slowly. By 800 CE, there was paper in Baghdad. It arrived in Europe around 1300 as a result of the Crusades. This was just the material Gutenberg needed. Second, he had to develop the right ink. The old recipe, used since Roman times, soot, glue and water, would not do. It wouldn't adhere to paper properly. Gutenberg experimented with countless formulations and finally settled on a mix of soot, turpentine and walnut oil. Next, tiny metal letters in reverse had to be handmade and their heights had to be exactly even. 
after all that, Gutenberg had to create a device that would stamp a large sheet of paper with even pressure at every point on the page. All in all, it took him 20 years to invent a working printing press. Finally, in 1554, Gutenberg put his invention to the test. In double columns, with 42 lines to a page, he produced 300 copies of what is now called the Gutenberg Bible. 1,282 pages, the first printed book, and today it's the most valuable book in the world. The world's first book was not so good for Gutenberg, however. He'd gone into debt to create it. His creditors sued, and he was forced to turn over all his tools, his books, and his printing machine. Gutenberg never married. He died in debt and believed he was a failure. But he was not. His printing press was a hit. Printing swept Europe by 1500, only 40 years later. 9 million copies of 30,000 books were in circulation. Because of the printing press, scholars could act as teams, sharing data, rather than being individuals in isolation. Gutenberg's press not only enabled the scientific revolution that was about to come, he made it inevitable. History Remembered. For Free World Theory, I'm Hayden Jones. You're listening to Free World Theory. What if ironing boards are really surfboards that gave up their dreams to get a real job? Leon Theremin was a Soviet-era Russian scientist. He lived in America for a time, and in 1945 invented a device that U.S. Secret Service organizations called the Thing. The thing was a carved, wooden, American eagle wall hanging. It was presented to the U.S. ambassador in Moscow by a group of Soviet school children one day as a gesture of friendship. For years, it hung in the ambassador's Moscow residential study. But it was actually a passive listening device the Soviets used to spy on diplomatic meetings for years, until it was discovered in 1952 and removed. Creating Cold War-era bugs wasn't the only thing that Leon Theremin did. As a Soviet scientist, he built radio stations, X-ray technology, he invented the motion detector, he developed broadcast TV in Russia, and he also invented the theremin, the world's first electronic musical instrument. When he arrived in the U.S. in 1927, he filed a patent for the instrument and publicized it the same year in a live performance with the New York Philharmonic. He went on tour, gave concert after concert, and in 1930, 10 thereminists played Carnegie Hall. Somewhere around that time, the suave scientist became romantically entangled with a Lithuanian concert violinist named Clara Rockmore. She became the world's first concert virtuoso theremin player. She toured coast to coast with Paul Robeson, the great African-American tenor famous for his performances on Broadway. The theremin didn't take off as a concert instrument, but it eventually found a home in the movies. 
To create an otherworldly feel, composer Miklos Rosa used it in his score for Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound. And also for Billy Wilder's film noir drama, The Lost Weekend. Composer Bernard Herrmann featured it in the great science fiction film, The Day the Earth Stood Still. Probably because of those films, for decades, the theremin has been associated with strange occurrences. But Leon Theremin wasn't around anymore to see how his instrument was being used. A decade earlier, when he decided his theremin should be used for dance music, he began working with the American Negro Ballet Company. He fell in love with a young black ballerina, Lavina Williams, and married her, which caused a scandal. In the 1930s, this was unacceptable for an internationally famous Russian scientist. Soviet agents broke into his studio, kidnapped him, and took him back to the USSR, where it was rumored he'd been sent to work in the mines and eventually executed. The rumor was false, but it put an end to the so-called embarrassing marriage. Leon Theremin wouldn't be heard from again until the 1960s when a New York Times music critic recognized him while visiting the Moscow Conservatory and wrote an article mentioning him. It was another embarrassment for the Soviets. The conservatory's director issued a statement. He said, Electricity is not good for music. Electricity is to be used for electrocution. Theremin's instruments were then removed from the university, the electronic music program was shut down, and Leon Theremin was dismissed. He was finally able to visit the U.S. again in 1991. History Remembered for Free World Theory. I'm Chas Holloway. You've been listening to Think Tank a Free World Theory Special Edition. In the next episode, you'll discover the most fundamental and important aspect of any society, anywhere, property. The Free World Theory Podcast is written and directed by Chaz Holloway. Also heard in this episode, Hayden Jones. I'm Bill Hergensen. For more information, visit freeworldtheory.com. The Free World Theory Podcast is copyright 2021 by Charles Holloway. <laughs>